Hey, Micah. Hey, what's up? Is this Adam? Yeah. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. All right, cool. So, yeah. Um, hey, everyone. This is uh, Adam. I have him on talking about uh, evolutionary psychology. And uh, so, Adam, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Yeah, of course. So, I guess, uh, like a disclaimer, um, I am no expert, but... I so I studied economics in school at the University of Maryland, and then I kind of stumbled my way into the evolutionary psychology kind of rabbit hole. Um, and I started listening to some Richard Dawkins, and then it kind of led me into uh, this one podcast that had these two clinical psychologists who they use evolutionary insights to help with their practice. But some of their suggestions for books on you know Jeffrey Miller and David Buss and Steven Pinker kind of got me doing my own research. So it's kind of more of a hobby right now, but um, I haven't really, you know, gone too deep in the weeds. So again, yeah, disclaimer, no expert. Okay, cool. No problem. So uh, what, are, what are, I guess, some of the more like interesting um, evolutionary psychology um, theories and stuff like that, that you're like, that you've been looking into? Yeah, so I guess um, one of the main things is I kind of found it counterintuitive at first, um, coming from, you know, econ and other social sciences. A lot of the human kind of behavior, uh, social sciences are based in learning theory and Freud and kind of Skinner still. So, you know, hearing some evolutionary logic of uh, that there are innate circuits that everyone possesses both universally as well as on the individual difference and kind of what the um, result of that is that kind of blew my mind at the first. So I kind of thought that, you know, reinforcement and learning theory were um, kind of what affects behavior and, and, you know, phenotype outcome. But I guess I can kind of give a, like a brief history of psychology in the last 100 years. So I know that, you know, when Freud was, he had his theories, a lot of, you know, his theories were based on introspecting into the mind and half of the academic world was kind of upset that that you could look into the mind and understand the complexities uh, that affect the behavior. So there's another branch called uh, behaviorism where you could observe behavior that you just saw and then you that's where reinforcement reinforcement and kind of learning theory was based out of. But, you know, more uh, recently in the 60s with Robert Trivers and some other adaptionist thinking, they kind of resurrected the Darwinian thinking of that psychology is rooted in biology, which is kind of the first integrated approach, which is where evolutionary psychology, but it basically kind of understands the nature versus nurture aspects of human behavior. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't even really know like where, I don't know <laughs> too much about it. So like, yeah, no worries. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know you mentioned you listen to some, you might have heard of David Boss and some other researchers. So, yeah, I, I listen. I listen. Yeah, you want to share your kind of background on on what you're familiar with or what you're inter interested in or what kind of evolutionary psychology, I guess, concepts. Well, I'm, you know, I listen to the David David Boss and Lex Friedman, and I, I find it interesting. And I've tried to find some more, I guess, podcasts. Not necessarily podcasts on it, but like, yeah 
people talking about it, like maybe on Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman. The only one that I found on Lex Friedman was David Buss, I think. Um, I just recently listened to one on Joe Rogan. It wasn't evolutionary psychology, but the guy was into like um, psychedelics, as you know, mm, a lot of the yeah. Joe Rogan stuff is. So I'm also interested in the psychedelics, but I just kind of, so I was, um, I was raised like Christian and I went to a Christian school and I kind mm -hmm. of learned everything from that standpoint that we were just like, you know, created by God and we are the way we are because God created us, us that way. And then as I kind of got more into evolution and away from Christianity, I guess you could say, and realizing that we all just kind of evolved to become this way, I, um, I kind of started thinking, oh, well, I, I'm this way because of evolution, not so much because God created me this way. You know what I mean? I mean, not yeah. necessarily saying that I don't believe in God at all, but um, I wouldn't say that I'm like an atheist. But, you know, some people believe, I guess, that like God created us and then we evolved, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But first of all, what are your what are your thoughts on um, Christianity, God, religion and that? Do, do you just feel like we first of all, I guess, just have evolved or do you feel like we've been created? Are you religious at all? Yeah, no, those are, those are great questions. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so I know a lot about the, you know, the cause and effect about how we're wired, what we're motivated for, what emotions came about and kind of how to act and, you know, culture and just as the animal we are, um, kind of a lot of the explanations that were given that are not rooted in, you know, biology and the scientific method are, they come from lots of different religions. So a lot of religions have their own kind of, um, beliefs on how we came about how to feel about the other sex, you know, different relationship, you know, made in rules and really how to govern a tribe and group. So, you know, I'm with you in the, you know, the Christianity upbringing. So I was actually raised, you know, in a Christianity household, pretty much like I'm sure the average listener or any traditional person growing up in America in, you know, 2020 or what have you. But yeah, I know when I was, you know, going to church and I kind of would hear all their explanations and stuff, it was, a lot about, um, you know, I'm not against religion or anything. I think, you know, parables and different stories can get different messages across that have little nested, uh, I guess, little lessons, I guess, have you. So, you know, from that perspective, I can understand how religion can be beneficial to some people where they have a story and, you know, there's different virtues such as empathy or gratitude. You know, I have no problem with people coming together on groups on Sundays and, you know, getting together and, um, you know, like-minded individuals, I guess. But, uh, you know, growing up with that upbringing, I kind of, I was a little bored at church, honestly, so I kind of <laughs> didn't really want to go. Uh, getting into middle school and high school, I would try to stay over at my friend's house and try to sleep late on Sunday so I wouldn't have to go to service. But yeah, and then eventually you get to high school and then you get out of your parents' house. Um, I went to college and yeah, you learn about evolution and different other psych psychological effects that actually, you know, have an influence on the human being and that a lot of it actually is immutable. And, you know, the religious stories aren't necessarily true, but I mean, there can be, I guess, me again, messages that people find helpful, but yeah, I mean, from that perspective, I don't, I don't really have a religious route right now, but I mean, I was raised that way. And I mean, you know, hearing about evolution, it's kind of the, the flip, the flip side of the coin when it comes to, you know, what kind of animal are we and what affects, what affects what?
yeah so what what are your i guess like what are your thoughts on um and you know how it all i guess like how we got here how it all started and all that is just like the the typical evolution evolutionary theories or yeah i mean you know we're a we're a highly social intelligent primate species so for i think 99% of the modern homo sapien or human species they lived in hunter gatherer tribes of anywhere from 50 people to 150 so you would see about 100 people and you would meet 100 people throughout your life you know seeing a stranger would be a nor- or not not a normal thing so you know for example new york there's a environment mismatch when your brain evolved versus where it's at now um you know millions of people in one city passing each other would that would not be um, the everyday thing so i think from that perspective understanding that most of the time that our species spent was in this small group of people a lot of our status and hierarchy driven you know desires and um, you know ability to attract mates and retain them and then also to you know get along with other people in your groups whether that's uh, you know, a company that you work for, a friend group, your your family, your career, you know, hobbies that you have. You're kind of always, everyone's trying to be, you know, as sexy as they can, trying to attract the best mate, trying to get the best friends, um, trying to impose the least cost to other people in the group. So we kind of have this inherent drive to get along in the group, you know, get a mate, get friends, get alliances, and just deal with the cost of living in groups because you know, there's a lot of potential problems when you group humans together, but, you know, through 99% of our history was spent in those groups, we kind of have these evolved mechanisms to, you know, get along with other people. But as, um, as you move forward and you develop agriculture and you can now, you know, have more calories per square foot, you can have more people in a city in an area. So that 100 people will eventually skyrocket to um, you know, a little town, and then it'll go to a city, and then it'll just mushroom in size as, um, you know, the specialization of labor within that group just makes it more efficient and people are more innovative. So if you have more people in a city, you have more brains, more ideas, and more things that you can accomplish. So um, that's kind of one way on how culture and environment had a runaway kind of selection process with, um, you know, the benefits of living in groups especially with uh, with our primate species. I'm also kind of all over the place. I know I know I said I'm no expert, but a lot of this is just rambling right now. So if I'm like not making sense, um, uh, please let me know. No, no, you are. And it's like, I didn't, you know, give you any questions or anything. So we're kind of just, we're kind of just running with it. But um, yeah, so on um, a few of the questions I guess I had is, um, well, one thing was, is, you know, I, I never really, I guess I never really even like thought about emotions and stuff like that, you know, and um, a little while, probably a couple of years ago or something, I, I kind of learned that, like, I, I think we like kind of almost have evolved um, to get emotions, I think, to survive, right? Like, do you mm-hmm. know, do you know right. much about that? Like, all yeah. emotions are kind of based on, I guess like you can call them like survival techniques or whatever. And, and, and everything is kind of essentially based on survival. Right. I mean, when it comes down to it, like the whole goal 
especially like thousands of years ago or whatever, was just to survive. And now we're not, now we're in a place where like, we're not really like scared of dying every day or whatever, but mm. whatever. I, I kind of find, found that interesting that like everything that we're doing essentially is just to kind of like survive and to live, you know what I mean? To stay alive for as long as we can. So now, now we're a pretty, you know, obviously intelligent species or at least the most intelligent and we're still kind of doing everything we're still kind of doing is ideally to stay alive right i mean that's kind of like the foundation of everything right is just to like basically yeah. right yeah so that's that's exactly right so you know survival that's that's one aspect of it so if you're an organism or any animal it doesn't need to be human you, know, you could be, be a rabbit or a fox whatever but you know your first instinct is going to be make sure I don't die. So that's the survival part. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to get in car crashes. There's, you're going to have fears about different things. Um, you know, it's no mistake that, you know, humans have a fear of large predators and prey, given the environment that the ancestral conditions were under, you know, there's large game everywhere. So first you're going to be, you're going to have fear. You're going to be afraid of large things that could risk you dying so first you gotta survive that's number one and then once you survive and you know you're not worried every minute of the day if you're gonna get eaten or if you're not gonna have enough to eat or drink you know you're not gonna die of starvation or malnutrition so that's number one is that survival but once you meet that baseline you're gonna channel your efforts in this um, sexual selection processes so the other part is reproductive su success so any behaviors and traits that, you know, someone holds that the opposite sex in whatever species would find attractive to choose in a mate and, you know, produce offspring, because it's going to be the combination of the genetic code between the two that's actually going to be inherited down to the offspring. So, you know, you and I are talking today, we come from an unbroken chain of evolution. So every single an ancestor that we had successfully mated. So we hold the cognitive traits and abilities as well as different emotions and feelings that aided in either increasing the likelihood of genetic survival or increasing the likelihood of uh, genetic reproduction. But that's kind of a basis, if that makes sense. But it's really those two, uh, those two sides that people kind of need to understand uh, when they think of any kind of behavior. Does that okay. all make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. And do you feel like we've kind of almost gotten to a point now where it almost kind of seems like we've kind of gotten to a point where, like, you know, I know, like, like you just said, everything that we do to choose a mate or whatever kind of depends on having good offspring, essentially. And I kind of feel like we're at a point now where, I don't know, like, I, um, people aren't, like, necessarily doing that. It's almost more of, like, a... Like sex kind of has, I feel like has kind of become more of like a cultural thing, maybe like kind of like the type of girl that everyone's attracted to do tends to be like this really skinny, you know, model type when, but I've heard theories about like how, like part of the reason why men are attracted to women with like big breasts or, you mm. know, butts or whatever like that, like it's because I don't even know how true that is, but don't they say that that's because like, oh, that, that's because like they're better for kind of like having children or whatever, or like maybe like they have more milk or whatever. I know it sounds kind of weird, but, yeah. but no, like, I, I kind of, 
now I kind of feel like it's moved more towards like, oh, how pretty is she? And I, I get that, like, how pretty they are it does have to do with like their health and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Right, right. But do you feel like as like a as a culture or whatever, we've kind of moved, or we're almost like moving away from, or have been probably like moving away from the natural evolutionary system to more of like a. I guess like what culture deems um, acceptable or whatever, or like, you know, cool or, you know what I mean? Yeah. I guess another kind of concept to understand is that our species arose out of poverty. So again, just trying to find enough food to survive, just trying to figure out kind of where you're going to sleep for the night. That's always goal number one. And that's been goal number one for, you know, a millennia going back to the, you know, the roots of sexual selection. So um i mean sorry natural selection but so once you get that figured out you'll kind of channel your efforts into what you might call leisure time so when you're not working um to get enough money to you know put food on the table or do experiences that you want to have you know you have this free time and people usually channel it towards um sexual behavior so you know that's why art music uh, movies all these other things where you're kind of experiencing other people's emotions and you're living your lives kind of vicariously through, um, you know, seeing successful, attractive people on TV, or maybe it's a video game where it's an artificial stimuli. So, you know, a lot of video games kind of mimic that warlike um, aspect of it. There's levels, there's, you know, new characters, there's, uh, there's different levels, you know, Apex Legends, Fortnite, like Battle Royale, where you start with a hundred people, there can only be one winner. It's the status um, you know, hierarchy mechanism that kind of is innate in all of us. So it kind of hijacks that old neural circuit that evolved for other reasons. Um, so that's kind of an environmental mismatch. But but like you were saying with how we kind of moved away from, you know, the innate nature of sex and the purposes of it through kind of the modern environment and modern culture, I think, um, I still think that nothing has changed in everyone's brains. I think you're still looking for the same things. Um, you know, you're still looking for a mate, you're still looking for friends, you're trying to be successful, you're trying to reproduce. And none of that's really changed, but it's just the environment that we live in where, you know, smartphones, nine to five, all of that is kind of a proxy for some of the work that was going on in, in ancestral environments, but it's not nearly the same, you know, technology and innovations that occurred in the last, uh, I don't know, like a hundred years, 500 years, it's just not even close. So a lot of that's just has to do with humans becoming in bigger groups. So, you know, with the rise of the dot-com era with the internet, now we can all exchange information across the world and you can see how other people are living in developing countries. They can see how good we have it over here in America or maybe in Europe somewhere. Um, you know, if there's some medical advice in India that someone has that they can share across the world, then, you know, that that's just one benefit of the information. But, you know, it's a double-edged sword where on the other side, there's a lot of bad ideas and there's different memes and um, just inaccurate information. You could even call it media or different social media stuff where no one really has a, I guess there's no requirement or kind of barrier to enter with what you post online. So no one has to be qualified to really say anything over the internet. They can kind of just say their opinion. So at the same time, there's a lot of bad information, but, um, you know, there's also a lot of good ideas that are being exchanged, which is resulting in some of the innovation that you see today.
Yeah, and as far as the innovation that you see today, like the technology and the way that we're going, do you, do you view, and I guess most evolutionary psychologists view it as being a good thing or a bad thing or maybe like a mix of both? Um, yeah, I don't, yeah have, you know, I don't have the best informed opinion, but I will say, um, you know, we, we can talk about politics. So large scale politics, everyone gets very, very riled up. Um, and essentially, you know, what, what a government and a president is, is kind of like the leader of whatever tribe or group that you're in. You know, everyone pitches in a little bit of their time and effort, which translates into money in today's society, um, aka taxes. And then it, they have this big bucket of this budget. So everyone ha kind of has a small stake in it. So what they do with that money, um, you know, is in the is, should be in the best interest of everyone. So everyone kind of has their own idea of what's fair and what's not fair. Um, but, you know, in ancient environments and, you know, old tribes and even, you know, dictatorships across the world that still exist where there's political systems that, um, you know, really govern and they can really affect the lives of each individual in their country. But, you know, we're kind of lucky to live in a time where, you know, I don't know about you, but it doesn't really matter to me who's president in America every year because they don't really have that much effect on my individual life, which is a good thing. But, you know, that wasn't always the case for hundreds of thousands of years where, you know, if there was someone that could terrorize or, um, you know, there's it's usually met with a smaller group of males that can kind of counteract. But I think I went off on a tangent. <laughs> I'm kind of just rambling now, but. Uh... Yeah, well, I was more, not so much politics, but I was more wondering with like technology and stuff, um, not only technology, but just all of it, you know, technology with, uh, I guess, um, you know, today's advancements or whatever. Um, yeah, kind of like existential risk stuff with... Uh, well, not, not even existential risk. Like, do you just feel like we're going in a good direction, I guess, in terms of mainly technology? Um, yeah, and, and I guess... How is, how is that kind of, like, affecting, I guess you could say, evolutionary psychology, um, you know, in a good way or bad way? Or are just psychology in general? Yeah, so I, I guess I would say I would say it's um, you know the, just the general direction of everything increasing with innovation and technology is a good thing, um, but at the same time, the way that evolution works and inherited genes and just differences in the environment on like the effect on what it would have, you know, thousands of years later or so, um, it moves so slow and gradual that how fast cultural you know, technology innovations um, happen. It's that's it's so much faster than what the brain can evolve at. It takes millions of years, thousands. Um, you know, it takes a lot of different selection. Uh, it's got to filter through all the years and you know different generations. But uh, so one example I would give is you know contraception. So the ability for female, you don't have to. You can enjoy you know casual sex without getting pregnant every single every single time but at the same time um the psychology hasn't evolved where you could just have sex and then just forget about it because you know under ancestral conditions there's a maybe five percent chance that you get pregnant and if you're pregnant whatever species has invest more in their offspring um for example in humans you know it's going to be nine months of childbearing and then even when that kid is you know pops out he can't just go and fend for himself um, a newborn baby, you gotta you gotta raise it till at least you know five, six, seven, or 
usually 20 years in our species. It takes that, that maturation period is pretty long. So you're going to need the investment of the mother. And if you had a father that invested, that offspring would be better off. And that's kind of where, um, you know, different, there's a lot of different relationship stuff and different inherent conflicts between um, kind of the sexes happen. But I don't know if I, again, I think I went off on a tangent. No, 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 it's fine. Yeah, that, I mean, you pretty much answered it. But um, so you listen to like a lot of pod, like, so it's, first of all, is this your main, this is, this is your main kind of hobby, right? Like just researching this stuff or whatever, or? Yeah, I guess it's kind of more of an interest. I don't really have, uh, I guess, career goals right now. You know, it would be, it would be fun to use these insights. I think there's a lot of practical use for it. Um, a lot of like different consumer research personality and even, you know, business technology, I think could use some kind of insight just if they understand, you know, the human that you are, you would, you would better be able to optimize the environment because, you know, if you can't really change the psychology of what you can change is uh, different like structural changes in your environment. Um, for example, if you're, if you have alcoholic genes or you're more likely to become an alcoholic, you know, one structural change is just to not bring beer or, you know, alcohol into the house. Um, that's, that's one way to kind of modify behavior, but, I kind of forgot the question. I'm not really sure if that example was too random. Oh no, it's fine. Like, so I, I was more just kind of like wondering what are, um, if you listen to like a lot of Evo Psych podcasts, I was wondering, I'm just going to like give it over to you now. Like what are some of the things that there, but I honestly, I can't even, for whatever reason, I can't think of too much to ask in this topic, but what are some of the things that they're, some of the new, I guess, discoveries or whatever that they're talking about on these podcasts and some of the things that you think maybe I or, you know, the listeners should know about evolutionary psychology that, like, maybe I don't know. But I feel like a lot of this stuff I, I already probably kind of know, you know, like how we used to, you know, literally fear animals would kill us. So that, you know, is why we're, like, Kind of like we'll randomly get like stressed out or whatever you know what i mean yeah. what are some of like the theories that they're they talk about on the podcast or that you've learned that you would that you might want to talk about are there any yeah i think um you know one one pretty big thing in the last i want to say three to four years is the kind of nature nurture debate so evolutionary psychology a lot of what we're talking about are universal differences um, I mean, universal traits that all of us hold to some degree, um, but the kind of individual level where there's different personalities and people differ, individual differences within a population, you know, the causes of that, there's different theories throughout, you know, history about what, what caused that. And the most popular one, again, is, you know, when you think about learning theory and kind of a lot of things that are rooted today, it's that. You know, the environment would really affect you in a way that would change the wiring in your head. But there's been evidence in behavior genetics that suggest otherwise um, and kind of close that that nature nurture debate. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's not been answered. So, you know, human psychology is complex. But basically, uh, Robert Plowman, he's a behavior geneticist. He came out with a book called Blueprint in 2018. Uh, you know, he talks about nature and nurture. And the way that he's able to study how much of an effect the 
environment has in the phenotype, which is what you observably see, you know, someone's height, someone's skin color, um, what they prefer to watch, what they prefer to listen to, and all of that, that would be the phenotype. And then the genotype is the genetic code that gets inherited. You know, the gene, it's in, uh, the genetic code is in every single cell in your body. Um, and it basically just, you know, codes for proteins and then expresses, you know, your body in a different way. But basically, the learning theory and the nurture main thought kind of in today that a lot of psychotherapists, um, you know, psychoanalysts think of today is that, you know, different things that happen to you in the environment, those inputs actually affect the genotype in a long-term permanent way. But again, that uh, that's one way of thinking, but Robert Plowman basically studies uh, what you call as monozygotic twins. So you can take two identical twins are 100% genetically related um, in these rare cases where they actually get raised apart and you can actually study them over the long term. I think there was a, there's actually a documentary called three, three strangers or three identical strangers, I, I think, where um, these three identical twins were raised in three different households of different, you know, uh, parenting styles, maybe different socioeconomic status and uh, little factors that you would think would affect someone in the long term. But in that way, if they're 100% genetically related and you raise them in different environments and you study them over time, you can, you can tell the difference between them. If they're 100% genetically related and you change one variable, which is nurture, uh, you'd be able to measure how much of a variance that phenotype experiences would be related to the environment. Um, and basically, it comes down to, I know a lot of um, the, a common heuristic is 50% genetic influence and the 50 other percent is nurture. And he talks about, you know, the nature of what that nurture is. So I think one of the things that I kind of learned from that is that he talks about the nature actually modifying and selecting its environment. So the nurture isn't completely random. Uh, so if you think about, you know, maybe a parent that reads to his kids a lot and that kid really likes to read and they grow up and you say it was because of the parent reading to them when they were little, that was the cause and effect. Um, you might also say, who are the parents that are reading to them? If a parent is reading to their kid, they might have that preference to read and they might have that inerrant, inherent, um, you know, personality trait and intelligence where uh, they, they kind of niche pick into certain hobbies and certain interests, such as reading. And then that also gets passed down and inherited through the kids. So the kid is now reading, but you could say that it's the parent that taught the kid how to read, or you could also see it as the kid possesses inherent, um, you know, inherited traits and behaviors that might offer them a preference to, to like reading more than the average person. Yeah, so basically, I mean, basically, it kind of just sounds like it's very hard to kind of, like, tell between nature and nurture, right? Like, we know that it's both, but we don't know exactly how to tell. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, like I said, when you modify your environment, if you were to think of maybe even your siblings, you know, how many siblings you have, your friend group, a lot of people, I think a lot of people agree that the people in your life kind of have an influence on you. 
whether you like it or not. Uh, it's kind of just the information that you observe and you kind of take in from the outside that would affect how you think maybe or how you feel about certain things. Um, not always, but I know there's some, there's some ways that that can happen. So everyone kind of agrees that, you know, your friend group is important, but your friend group also isn't completely random. So you could say that, um, you know, if you went to high school and you only had a hundred people, that group itself, that sample size is, is biased and kind of, it's not a, it's not a representative sample of everyone in the world, but it's just a random 100 people. So you would be exposed to these 100 people in your environment that would kind of affect, you know, how you feel about certain things, how you behave. But within those 100 people, you might select people that are more similar to you and your values, your personalities, your hobbies. Um, so you might stick around with maybe four or five people that you really like. And you could say that those four or five people are the nurture and that's the environmental input that has an effect on how that person grows up, what they think, but at the same time, who that person is genetically and their their inherent kind of innate personality and different, you know, hobbies, what they like, their preferences, all of that kind of picks and modifies that that nurture, that environment, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um have you have you heard of like the you know we don't have free will argument type thing or whatever like you know Dino Hussein yeah I'm, I'm definitely um I, th I think a lot of what we're saying kind of you could kind of bleed into that like for example I can't um decide that I'm hungry or like if I'm hungry that feeling kind of just arises out of me so pretty much at any given moment like if wind is hitting me in a weird way on my arm I can't I don't really have the free will to choose not to feel that it's just kind of you know I feel it in my skin and then I have a thought of irritation in my head but that irritated thought itself is not, it's not something that I chose to do. Um, but I think it's kind of along the same vein. Um, but what are you thinking about, you know, free will and how do you see that argument? But I don't, you know, obviously like, I don't know for sure. It's, I, I think it's one of those arguments that it, it, it's very hard to like prove one way or the other, because it's like, according, I think according to like science and physics, right? Like, um, and you probably you know who Sam Harris is, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. Those are like one of the first kind of guys that got me out of my um, my initial kind of that like religious upbringing. It's kind of, you hear those are like so they're kind of the four horsemen, I guess, in atheism. So um, you know, I'm not really super big into them now. Like, I haven't really listened in a few years, but they are definitely part of this um, this whole kind of like industry when it comes to what information you hear, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm familiar with Sam Harris. I know he's pretty big with psychedelics, as, as you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, like with the no free will thing, I've I've mainly listened, I've listened to other people talk about it too, but like, you know, he believes we don't have free will or whatever, and it's like, you know, even physicists like John Carroll or whatever, I, I think we'll talk about how essentially like the Big Bang happened, and then since then, over billions of years, it's all kind of just going a certain way, and it's like, to a certain extent, like we don't really have a whole lot of control over even who we are or what we do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like a criminal to a certain extent is just kind of like right. kind of going to be a criminal. You know what I mean? And then it's like a good person is just kind of going to be a good person. So, yeah, and I, listened to, I forgot who it was, but some guy who you would you might know who he is. I, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he was on Joe Rogan and he was saying how like 
we look back in a hundred years and we we think, oh man, like what they did to certain criminals or people who had mental illness or whatever was just so bad. Yeah. But in a hundred years, we'll look back on now and think that about us because essentially a lot of these people just don't have free will and like whatever is happening it's almost like whatever is happening to them is just kind of happening to them you know but it seems to me like it's a very hard thing to like kind of prove one way or the other because even though you could say we don't have free will it still definitely feels like i am making my choices Mm -hmm. on a basis yeah and i was just kind of like wondering what you thought about yeah that I mean, when you say, you know, you make the choices, or if I were to say I make the choices, I think, you know, like Sam Harris, he might ask, like, who is you? You know, what what is you? Is it your brain? Is it your body? Is it you have you're built with like different components that, you know, you can be hungry, or you can want to you can be really tired, but you can also want to stay up and hang out with friends, or you want to see your girlfriend or wife or partner, whoever. Um, So there's different you have different motivations and desires. And I think, you know, like you said, looking back in a hundred years, like how do we, how, how do you evaluate, you know, the prison system and people that do crimes? Because, you know, when it comes down to it, they are genetically wired to just be, you know, narcissistic bastards who kill and rape people. And I think people like that aren't, it wasn't learned behavior. It's not something that you can want to do. It's, you're just, you're wired from, the start and you know you, you have messed up psychopathy you know different different thought patterns that just aren't normal and you know sick and kind of fucked up things that where you do need to be in a prison so i do agree that i think you know there's certain there's a certain percentage of the population that you know it's going to be they're going to be in prison they're going to they're going to do crimes they're going to have these negative aspects of them um and you just really can't change them so you could say they don't have free will, but I don't think that excuses or allows them to, you know, be outside of the prison. If you're aware that they don't have free will and they're going to do these nasty things, I think your best strategy would be keep them in the prison and just keep them away from anyone that they could harm. But I don't know yeah. if that answers it, but that's kind of where where I kind of see that. Yeah, it's almost like, like yeah, it's like, what is the best solution? It's like almost like maybe yeah. like, them in prison away from other people so they don't harm other people but maybe i guess make the prison systems at least not like a horrible place to be like obviously they don't have to be like a five-star resort or anything but like don't make them so like they're getting like you know they're in just awful situations you know um because to a certain extent i do feel bad for some criminal happen to something's wrong with them and they happen to make a mistake or whatever um you know it, it is hard to feel bad for someone who killed someone or raped someone or whatever but um yeah one other question one question that i had that i don't think that anybody is probably going to be able to answer but when i've listened to some of these podcasts i've kind of had this question yeah i'll give it a uh, shot what uh, i said i'll give it a shot but oh uh, no it's like like what I said it earlier on was like our whole kind of goal is to survive or whatever. And all our, I guess, emotions and instincts or whatever, kind of come down to that. Mm-hmm. Do we know even like why everything kind of has even like the will to survive? Like, do we know where that comes from? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, 
Yeah. You know? So a lot of it, I mean, just to survive, you're, you're really, uh, when you boil it down, like you said, it goes back to gen- and then passing those genes through an offspring, which is, you know, reproduction. So that's really the sleeve of inheritance and heritability. Um, so it's the genetic code that ultimately wants to be passed along to the next generation and so on and so um, So basically you can think of like our bodies and our brain as the vehicle, but that genetic code for, you know, reproducing your genes might not be this happiness that you feel. They're usually correlated, but they're not always the same. Um, but that's kind of where that, I think what you're saying drive on, you know, why do we even want to survive? You know, you're designed to, you're designed to survive and then pass along your genes. So every little action you take process, if you're increasing the likelihood of survival or reproduction, that process is going to feel good. If you're going to the gym and you're seeing progress, um, that's going to, you're not, you don't even need to know why, or, you know, if you feel hungry, if you haven't eaten in a while, you know, you get some sugary, salty food, uh, that process to you, you're going to get a feeling of, I'm sure you can measure it in neuroscience with some neurotransmitter. You can see like dopamine, serotonin, or something that goes up, right? physically measure when you're eating food but you don't need to understand that that food is going to help you with survival and reproduction you know you it was just designed to get you to that to that um that part of reproduction regardless if you know it or not but i mean the the question is and like like is like more of like but we i don't think there's any way to like kind of like it's kind of like asking one of those questions that you can't answer i think you know what i mean it's kind of like mm. you know like do we know why we were i don't even know if i want to say created that way or like designed that way or whatever it just it just kind of like is what it is you know what i mean like yeah um honestly i really don't know so everything i don't, I don't even think yeah that, you know what i mean but um one other question i had too was like, so you know as far as like the evolution goes, and I think this is probably more like evolutionary biology than psychology, uh-huh. but is, um, okay. So you know how there's like survival of the fittest or whatever, where, you know, the, I guess like the most fit animals or whatever in their situation will survive. Like for instance, giraffe, uh-huh. the long neck will survive over, I guess one with a short one. So they all, all the ones with not long necks or whatever. Yeah, die off or whatever. Um, do you know if there's any transferring of the genes in this process? Um, so like for instance, let's just say like I get really good at some sort of it's kind of hard to ask this these some of these questions that I have, but like let's just say that I get like really good with something um and it helps me to survive or whatever. Is there any like of my genes that I've acquired while living that are passed on to like, say my kids or whatever that, or is it just great survival of the fittest? You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, I feel like I've thought about kind of, um, what exactly you're asking. Could you just repeat it one more time for me? Yeah. So like, um, so like, let's just say I get really good. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just going to, name like a random thing but like let's just say i get like really good at farming over Mm -hmm. my life or whatever and that helps me to survive because i'm just good at farming at it you know making food or whatever 
Well, any of those genes that I've acquired through, not that I was born with, but like through living, do like the genes actually change throughout your life? And then do you pass on those changed genes to your, to your children? Yeah, I think maybe I wasn't clear earlier, um, but your genotype or that genetic code that actually builds the proteins and builds every cell in your body, that actually cannot be changed, which is kind of, um, it, again, it sounds counterintuitive, but for example, you have a, like a reaction range for different environmental inputs. Um, I could give an example for tannin or language. So like you and I are speaking English right now. Uh, we learn to speak English. I wasn't like everyone. You just kind of learn. You pick up the culture, the language where you're born from a young age. And every human kind of has these inherent. Um, there's different language syntaxes and different rules that you are adapted to learn for whatever, whatever human society you find yourself. And so if we were born in Japan, we would pick up Japanese. Um, and then, you know, if, if you were, for example, I'm um, I'm not. I'm pretty tan, but if I were to go down by the equator, by Mexico, I'll get really tan just based on the environmental inputs of that. That'll change my phenotype for, you know, a short period. So I have a reaction range to produce melanin to protect my skin, which is a survival and reproductive goal. You want to you wanna make sure you're healthy. So the melanin is going to help me in some, you know, fitness indicator way where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be better off having the melanin the genes that would code for that tan but when i go back in the northern hemisphere i'm going to lose the tan so it's this little reaction range of the yes the environment can it can change how the genotype expresses itself in the phenotype um, if that makes sense but you're never changing the genotype per se and that's exactly what would be inherited through your offspring but Again, if you, you know, you have sex with a, a woman and you guys have a kid, you guys are both equally invested and given 50% of your genetic code, but it's not always, it's kind of a random, it's 50% you, but it's not like your kid is a hybrid of you because of that, that split. Yeah, it seems too like it's a, it's a hybrid of you and your wife or partner or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it, sometimes, in some cases, it seems like the kid is like completely different than both, or oh, you know, of course, like it's it's very weird how in some cases you're like, how is that kid related to those parents at all? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know if you have siblings or you know brothers and sisters, but um, you know I have two, but you know we both share the same percentage from our parents, but it's not the same exact fifty. So you can look at a family with a few brothers and sisters and. Just because they, you know, have they both got fifty from their mom, fifty from their dad, um, they're not identical. They're still fifty percent different from each other. So basically, everyone is related fifty percent to each other in a family um, with non-identical twins. So that that little difference would cause, you know, the differences that you see between people and individuals, you know, in a family. Um, you could have the same exact upbringing. As your sibling but you guys are slightly different because you are genetically wired a little bit differently and those little tiny differences are going to make an influence on your behavior um, but again it's a it's an interaction of the gen the genotype and the environment which affects the phenotype so you and i could be talking and then um, you could tell me something that i never knew or i would never know 
talking to anybody else in my life. So I could go my whole life, maybe not knowing a certain piece of information, but just based on one conversation with you, maybe I acquired some kind of information that would affect my behavior in the future. Um, that's just information and wisdom. That wouldn't be called change in the genotype. That's just kind of life experience, information, and uh, you know, acquired acquired knowledge throughout throughout your time. So this is kind of why people say um, you know older people are smarter, or when in doubt, you know, someone with more experience might have more life experience. But what they're talking about is information and wisdom acquired over time, which is not the same as IQ and innate personality. It's it's that interaction of genotype, genetic code, times the environment, which affects you know your behavior in a way. And again, yeah. you're, you're kind of limited to a range. So I can never look like, you know, um, someone in the NFL, if I wanted to really play in the NFL, I can train all the time, but I have a, I have a ceiling that I'm going to hit or, um, but there are, you know, in extreme cases, if you had a kid and you starved him, you didn't give him, you know, the right calories and he was malnourished from the start, they, that kid might not be as tall as he was on average genetically going to be, you know, he might, if he was going to be six foot tall, um, maybe you put him in extreme positions, in extreme conditions where, I don't know, you put him in a box, you don't feed him, he never sees the light of day. Um, that person is going to be a little messed up. It's not the same as the average situation for, I would say like 95 or 99% of people. Yeah. Okay. And one question that I had that is, similar to the question of do we pass on our, our I guess our like um, learning genes or, or whatever but um, it's, as far as I think this is also has to do more with the evolutionary biology but you know like they I haven't really heard him talk about it in a while but they used to talk a lot about like the missing link or whatever in evolution um, I think the question that I had is is like let's just say they say as of right now like we were, were related to monkeys right or whatever um, do we know how that process would happen in terms of like literally changing from like a monkey to like a human? You know what I mean? Like how how does yeah you know what I mean? Or or were we never did we, is it is it that we didn't really change from monkey to human? We were always human. Like how, I guess the question would need to boil it down would be like how are we related to monkeys or chimpanzees or whatever it is? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess if you think of the animal kingdom, both plants and animals as, you know, this huge, this huge evolutionary tree that it covers every single group of primate, every animal, um, every mammal, um, you know, every, even fungi and, you know, different plants. Um, we have different, you might want to, you call it a, a common, a common ancestor. So it's not that we turned that monkeys turn into humans or humans, you know, turn into something else. Um, humans and monkeys both had the same common ancestor, maybe like, I think it was 7 million years ago. So just because we're super related, there's been 7 million years of evolution on our completely own species where it made us what we are today. Again, it's gradual and slow, so you wouldn't see it like that. Um, you know, if you took even a different bird species, and you had like a group of a thousand of them you took half of them and you put them across the world maybe in you know by the equator or then you put another one maybe on another island 
with slightly different conditions. Over time, the different genetic variants and alleles within that population are going to change. So in a thousand years, maybe half of them that are in uh, somewhere a little bit colder or something else, they're going to they're going to look a lot different than that other species. But, you know, they were once same and then, you know, different environments and conditions change them gradually over time. But I think it's kind of hard for people to conceptualize the the time scale of the evolutionary history. Um, so again, it's more about the common ancestor. You know, everyone had a common ancestor. So I think an example people would give is like, we're 50 something percent related to a banana. And they, they measure that by, you know, overlapping each that genome with each other. So the, the genome is what actually instructs your, the proteins and the cells in your body to create what you see. Um, so again, you know, with 7 million years of difference between us and chimps, that small difference is enough to see what you see today. But again, like we're both bipedal, we both have two legs where we walk upright. So there's a genetic basis in that where, um, you know, you and I don't walk on all four legs because we have these adaptions to walk on two feet. And so do some other primates, um, not all of them, but again, it's a, it's a really slow process. If that makes sense, but I think the answer you're looking for is that um, whichever species holds is just how far back in that root of the tree, like which nod, how far back you have to go. Well, that's what I'm, I, I have a hard time understanding is the common ancestor thing. It's like, how, how do we have a common ancestor? Like in terms of like explaining it in terms of like, you know what I mean? Like did the common ancestor just have like a kind of like a bunch of offspring and then like one went one way, one went the other way, or I, I don't really understand that. You know what I mean? When they say the common yeah, answer. I think, I think it might be misunderstanding. Um, it's not so much like one family and like their offspring, they split. Think about like a species yeah. of humans where, um, you know, half of, half of humans, there's an out of Africa hypothesis where, you know, everyone evolved in Africa, and then we kind of spread our roots as we began to travel. So some people went left, some people went right. Uh, some people went up north to Europe, some people went to Asia, some people went elsewhere. So maybe in like 90,000 years. So 90,000 years, it's kind of hard to, again, conceptualize that number, but based on where you're at geographically, for example, this is only in humans, um, within that small time, you might see a little bit of difference in, you know, if you're somewhere where the sun's gonna hit you, a lot harder, it's going to be harsher, whatever adaptions in that specific environment, um, that would make you, again, increase survival of reproduction and success. So if you had, uh, there were different variants where some people were a little bit darker, and because you're a little bit darker, you're protected from the sun, and you're going to survive better in that environment. Or maybe you're in the northern hemisphere, way up um, in some mountains with goats, and you're not going to, you're not that far I mean, you're far from the equator, so you know your your UV is not that high. Um, and in that way, you know, over maybe ninety thousand years, fifty thousand years, I don't know what time you're thinking, but um, those two populations are going to look a lot different. A hundred thousand years when they you know migrate different. So in that same way, you can think of different species as that common ancestor. It's one species, but some part of that species maybe branches off 
and then different conditions in different environments um, select for different traits that make those specific populations successful in that ecological niche. And then over time, it kind of snowballs and there's a kind of a runaway selection process that happens. And that's kind of what where you see the, the breadth of species you see today. Okay, so basically at one point, we were essentially the same animal or whatever. And then we are humans or whatever went one way. And at that point, we were actually called, um, what was it that, that we were before humans? Um, it might be like Homo erectus or something. I'm not sure the, the technical yeah. But, um, Something like that, but there's an actual like term for it. I, I'm forgetting it. But um, at one point we we maybe went one way, and then the chimpanzees or the monkeys went another way. And because we essentially kind of just went mm. a certain way, we essentially turned into humans, and they turned into monkeys, essentially. Yeah, or maybe you have a species where you have a mutation in someone's offspring again, genetically where you know, genetically, you're different than someone else um, based on these, you know, thousands of tiny little individual genetic influences. But it changes these the species where you might have a trait where you're a little bit more empathic or you're nicer to people. So you have a species, you can think of a species of maybe even, um, you know, chimpanzees where uh, some of them might have a little bit more ability to reason or they can kind of I guess, hinder their initial impulses of aggression or, you know, if someone hits you, maybe this mutation in the genetic code, when it hits that specific person, they might not react as aggressively. And so that's one mutation that could have an effect on survival and reproduction of that per of that specific, you know, individual within that population. And then, so if, you know, a woman or a different, the opposite sex of that species chooses that mate or that individual based on their traits that they hold their offspring is going to have that inherited trait that mutation that was in the father or uh, the parent so they'll have you know some of that mutation and then that'll affect how that offspring develops and how they um how they react on their environment which might be successful and it might not be um and that's kind of how different changes so i could give an example about height so i know a lot of people are you know there's like you know, girls like tall guys or whatever, but on the same way, you could see how an environment where the opposite would occur if there are a lot of tall guys or a lot of big men in a certain area, and then maybe there's an environmental um, disaster where the food supply in uh, the next 200 meters around you gets gets scarcer. So there's less food in the environment. And so those big, those big men or those big humans or those big people, like the big species, they don't have enough food and resources in the environment to sustain that living. So, but if you're smaller, you might be able to survive on a little bit less food and you'll still have the same amount of energy. So those you can see over time, maybe in a hundred years that if the environment stays constant or it's really scarce and the large animals can't find enough food or there's a constraint on the resources, um, it's possible that you know, in a thousand years, there might be smaller men or smaller people or a smaller version of that species in a certain ecology because of the resources have been constrained. Okay. And do you, and do you believe that it, it evolution is pretty much 
or um all um kind of survival of the fittest at its core like yeah that- so the survival of the fittest it kind of that that term and phrase gets min- misinterpreted um but it's really it's the fittest genes for whatever specific ecology so it's not the same for every single species um, yeah. and it's okay. not yeah yeah so it's basically like uh, you know if there's a species where the females prefer men who invest resources are kind patient they stick around they're non-aggressive so they're not going to freak out and get in a bar fight so you don't have to risk any uh threat to your offspring if you know you're the dad's watching the kid and you don't have to worry about him going to a bar and then getting in bar fights with the kid so there's different traits that you would prefer in the opposite sex to pass along your offspring or to ensure that the offspring would make it to you know, self-sufficient age, and then whatever traits that you combine with that parent would uh, would affect how that offspring is raised and and how they act in their environment. Yeah. Okay. And then going back to the original, like religion, I guess, like in morality stuff, you mentioned like empathy in this. Do you, do you feel like part of the reason why we are so successful is because of our maybe empathy or like? you know, working to, together as a tribe as opposed to, like, not working together as a tribe and... Uh... Oh, yeah, 100%. I think um, I think the coordinated action of ideas and individuals and humans is, like, not one person can really affect anything. It's that, it's the combination of everyone's ideas and it's that specialization of labor. I think that contributes to what you're able to see at a macro level on, you know, the innovation. So... I'm sorry. What was the what was the question? I kind of just spaced out because I. Oh, that's what it was. It was um, essentially like basically like we we're doing better as a species because of empathy and like working together as opposed to trying to like kill each other. Yeah. Again, back to our example. If you had one species where half of them had this mutated gene that caused them to be maybe ten percent more empathic. So half of the population is actually going to, you know, feel more, they're going to be able to feel other people's pain and suffering, as well as they're going to be better trade partners. They're going to be more agreeable. They're going to understand, um, you know, what's a benefit to me? What's a benefit to them? Uh, is, it's a, is it a non-zero-sum game? So they're going to be better trade partners in a way. And so maybe half of them that are 10% more empathic due to that genetic variant, they're going to be more successful in their group and they're going to they're going to flourish while the other 50% might still be aggressive. Um, they don't want to talk to each other, so they're not going to work together. So on their own, they're, they're worse off than the other half that actually is a little bit more empathic uh, and can work together and won't kill each other, or get, you know, get in fights over trivial things. But this is kind of one theory on how Neanderthals became extinct. I know. Um, that, that was the word. That was the word I was looking for. Was Neanderthal? Yeah. Oh, okay. Neanderthals. Yeah. Which was us before, right? Neanderthals. Well, Neanderthals. It's a, It's another. It's a different split. So it's not. Neanderthals didn't. They weren't the species that humans turned into. We both Neanderthals and humans, Homo sapiens, had that common ancestor. So I think when you talk about missing links, people usually talk about, you know, what made one species evolve completely radically into another species and they're usually looking for that that missing link but it's it's that gradual aspect of it where 
you know, Neanderthals didn't, they weren't before us and we weren't before something else. Um, I mean, maybe in you know a million years, maybe there will be, but I think it's that understanding of the, the tree and the nodes on the tree and their branches. So humans are one branch, Neanderthals are one branch. There was a main branch where we had the same common ancestor. And then, like I said, maybe there was, you know, 50% of the population that developed empathy by 10%. Now half the population can actually afford to trade with each other. They're more cooperative. They're nicer. They get along better in groups. And so they're more successful. They maybe become a different species because each offspring has those, you know, 10% empathy circuits. Then maybe there's another mutation where it ups it to 20% and then there becomes a, sorry, there's an optimal kind of uh, emotion in there that would evolve, but it can't be where if there is a mutation where they evolve 90% empathy or um, agreeableness, where they just want to do all this for other people, that would get selected out over time because they want to get enough benefit to them. So I'm sure there's a optimal amount, but that's just kind of one example uh, for the empathy point on kind of how to emphasize that point on, you know, what, what changes a species and that common ancestor and, and why that's so important. Okay. And in terms of like the mutation that you talk about, is that a mutation that would, would happen like say during one's life that, that changes or how, how does the mutation work? You know what I mean? Like it would come from, it would be that offspring. So it'd be from conception. So maybe the genes that a baby, you know, gets from his parent, this baby for some reason is, you know, like I said, 10% more empathic, that mutation happens in the, in the genotype when that offspring is created. So, you know, the genetic code, how it's like ATCG, maybe there's one aspect of it where the C and the T is changed to like a C and a C, or I'm not sure the exact parents, but there's tiny little influences that could be mutated where it's not the exact same as their parent in a certain region. And then that, that in turn affects their thought pattern, their feelings, and then their observable behavior that you see. Okay. And that can just happen with like one baby, like one baby's mutation could change like a whole lot in a tribe or whatever. Yeah. I mean, um, like for example, I'm i I'm six, five, my, my dad's six, four, my mom's, you know, an average, um, height, but my siblings are also tall, but we're genetically going to be more than average just based on, you know, what our parents like. So there is like a, a small reaction range, but we could also, you can see how if maybe they had another kid and there was some mutation in there that all the tiny little, whatever genetic influences occur that make that person like five, five or, or five, six. Okay. And do, you, do we know how the mutations happen? Is it just kind of like a like random chance kind of thing or like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not like an expert, so I don't know exactly the biological yeah. mutation. I think it's part of it's a random. So yeah, some of it's just like a tiny little difference and maybe that difference doesn't make a difference, but maybe it makes all the difference. It's, I'm not really exactly sure. Um, yeah. But again, through, you know, natural and sexual selection, there's also, like you said, uh, there's this thing called a founder effect where imagine, you know, you take part of a population 
uh, you know, 100 people, you take 20 of them and put them in some other environment. And, you know, in a thousand years, they're going to turn into something else or 100 years. But that 20 people, they're like 18, 18 out of the 20 of them are redheads. But in that larger population, that redhead was only like one fifth of the population. But now you took pretty much almost all the redheads. So in a thousand years, that population is going to have, um, you know, a biased version of it's not going to be a representative of that original sample. So you might find a lot of redheads or, or something in, in a species or that's that's a, it's a bad example. But I'm trying to get the point of that founder effect where the founders of a group and a you know, something that colonizes would have effects throughout all their offspring that are inherited, inherit those, those variants. In terms of like skin color, I guess besides redheads, right? Because redhead is a mutation, like blonde hair, brown hair, or like white skin, dark skin, that all, that all originates from essentially kind of like if you're living in the sun or not kind of thing, right? Like if you're in the sun, you're going to have darker skin. If you're living in the, not in the sun, I guess, in the cold, you're going to have yeah. white skin. And same yeah, so everyone kinda, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the global population of humans is kind of a spectrum of, of how much melanin you have in your skin. So um, that, that part of the evolutionary history on where you were in the world and where, like, how much melanin you have um, based on your geographical re region over, you know, evolutionary time, that, uh, that wasn't, that came after all the cognitive abilities. So all humans are the same, but you know, those, those skin, it's just, uh, they're just minor, minor differences based on the environment that, you know, maybe you had a little bit more sun, but you know, everyone roughly has the same psychology. So everything we're talking about encompasses that 100% of, you know, that global population. Yeah. And there's still somewhat of like a disconnect for me in terms of the survival of the fittest or whatever it is now, like, for me that like like so how how does one skin color change um in terms of survival of the fittest like let's just say for example it's hard for me to like mm -hmm. other stuff because i don't know all the correct terms and all that but if they, let's just say somebody's living in africa which means they have you know darks they've they've evolved to have dark skin how would their skin go about turning dark would you say like all the people with lighter skin just died off and all the people with darker skin um, or whatever? And then you can ask the question is, is well, how, like, why was there, like, how did, it's kind of hard for me to ask this question same mm -hmm. before, but it's like, how did the genes change in such a way where there was even light skin and dark skin? Does that kind of make sense? You know what I mean? Like for, like same thing with like the giraffe. It's like if the you giraffe know, giraffes have this way to like, explain mm -hmm. what his giraffes long necks or whatever but like at one point was the giraffes like with short necks and giraffes with long necks and the giraffes with short necks died off is that what happened essentially and then how was there do you kind of get what i'm the question yeah I'm asking? So I, I think um you know for, with your giraffe example one of the key features of selection is that it's gradual so you know it's real it's at least you know relative to, to the human lifespan so if you were a short-necked ancestor of giraffe, they didn't evolve long necks overnight. You know, occurred over generations, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years for the process of selection to gradually shape that organic mechanism that you see today. So 
like you could you could see how um, you know there were short neck giraffes, and then like I said, maybe it's the mutation that causes one giraffe to have a twenty percent longer neck, and now that guy that giraffe with the longer neck can actually grab leaves that the other short neck giraffes can't grab. So now he has a little bit more food. He's a little bit more he has more energy, um, and now that he has a little bit more energy, maybe he can spend it. I don't know, hitting on the giraffes at the water hole or whatever. But do you see what I'm saying? How yeah. like, one tiny influence that if you have just the slightest advantage over competitors in a population, that it's going to compound over time. And, you know, if you have that, you're able to get food, you're, you have that trait in you. And then, again, it's, it's mate selection. So our preferences are usually based on the choice and, you know, the preferences of the opposite sex, which is kind of what you see, but I don't know if that giraffe example makes sense. Maybe I'm no, no, it, it does, but for whatever reason, there was like a disconnect for me when learning about this stuff, because I was like, I, for yeah. some way that I visualize it is the giraffes actually kind of like, literally like kind of stretching out their necks and like, <laughs> somehow like, like changes their genes, you know what I mean? But that's just it's not the way it Yeah, yeah. And I was also curious about the whole how how is there both types? But then you just said I guess one of the babies had a mutation which gave them a longer neck, and then yeah, like they can exist at the same time. There can be it's a it's a spectrum of you know long necks maybe because I'm not I'm, I don't know what the giraffe size of the neck is, but I don't think every single neck is exactly ten feet tall. It could be like it's probably like a thousand giraffes, and they all range anywhere from like five feet long to like twelve feet. Or something like that but you know given yeah. the ecology, whatever size neck you have maybe there is an environment where like a long neck actually um hinders you and you're not able to you know get the food on the ground or something so in that case maybe the shorter giraffes will get selected yeah but how would you how would you explain like the skin color one like in africa like would would there have been both mm. black yes, going there and then the, the white skin people the, the heat. Yeah, it's the same analogy with the necks. So okay, okay. If you're in an environment and, you know, maybe you had uh, the genetic mutation that allowed your skin to produce a little bit more melanin. And now you're not as you're not as hot. You don't burn. You don't you yeah. have more energy because now you can actually go for a hunt for 10 miles. Now you can't before you could only go like four miles and then you needed to take a break because your skin was burnt. But now um maybe someone else in your group is like oh that's weird he's like he's a little darker and now he can like he can actually handle the sun where we are so like he has more energy than me that person might outcompete the person that's getting burnt because of that slight mutation that affects their behavior and, and their you know likelihood of survival and reproduction in that given ecology so when you and say that- the fittest it's really whatever fits that ecology which every little environment has a different condition uh, or a different optimal kind of uh, successful animal that would be you know the most successful in that ecological niche okay and that's just like a random genetic mutation that they the universe or it's just like just a random thing that happens that helps the animals out i guess or whatever yeah yeah um yeah, I mean, there's different, there can be genetic bottlenecks. So whenever a po- maybe a population shrinks because of a, a catastrophe such as an earthquake, um, you know, the survivors of that earthquake will only have a small subset 
of the genes from the original population. So it's not exactly that sexual selection and natural selection where, oh, you're trying to survive and, oh, I need to, I need to have the traits or I need to, um, you know, you want to be a certain way that the other sex or the other, whatever um, the sex in your species chooses you to mate. So you like, you're going to want those traits, but you know, se sexual selection, natural selection aren't the only cause of like founder effects or, you know, maybe the, like I said, the population shrinks that can, that can also cause, which is um, another, another aspect of it. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, just to wrap it up, like last two questions, one is going back to like the morality, I guess like emotion, emotions and morality, like, you know, I said we evolved to get emotions. Can you like speak on that a little bit? How, how we evolved to get emotions and then also the morality thing, like why we have morality. Do you even like believe in like a true morality as in right and wrong? Um, yeah, I think, I think everyone, um, like I said, how there's, you know, we grew up in these small groups of people where there was really big costs to living with each other. Uh, you know, there's theft, there's fighting, there's cuckoldry, there's like different, you know, criminal acts that can happen when you're in close proximity with other humans. But there's also great benefit of being with people. So, you know, you can, you don't have to rely on one person. Maybe you guys have a little specialization of labor, but going back to your emotions and how that was sexually selected, um, you can imagine that different traits that you have, like I said, were are influenced by the preferences of the other sex. So maybe you have um, some genetic makeup that when you see a dog or you see an animal that, you know, isn't isn't a threat, but you kind of treat them like a like a baby, or if you know, you do baby talk, whatever, and a female sees you doing that, she can have a certain feeling of, oh, you know, he's gonna be paternally invested based on what I'm seeing now. So that choice on, hey, I want that male or I want that mate, that mate can be that sexually selected. So in turn, the feeling that that guy felt for that puppy or that animal, that feeling that he gets like, oh, it's so cute, um, that can be selected because of the mate that's, you know, seeing that and, and they're just, they're based on the other sex and kind of what, this is just mate choice and sexual selection, but Again, I'm rambling. I don't. I don't have anything. Uh, this is totally not structured. This is kind of off the dome. Maybe we'll have to do a part two. But yeah, yeah, I, no, totally fine. Yeah. Uh, you answer the question, and then as far as like, because I mean, normally I just like to have like a conversation, anyways. I, I don't expect you to be some, you know, some sort yeah. of like genius on the matter or whatever. But um, also with like um, what about like like crying? Like, do we know why we cry? Like, I I've heard it's like some sort of like maybe like signal to someone else that we're mm -hmm. sad or something. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. So, you know, everything you do is kind of a signal, uh, in some way to other people. So you, you wouldn't just you know cry if you were alone. It would evolve in a way that if you cry, it would signal to other people that you're in pain or you're you know mental psychological pain or maybe you're in physical pain, um, that emotion would evolve because you would in turn kind of, that emotion helps seek sympathy and therefore resources and basically help um, from other people. So that's the way of why crying would help 
with your survival and reproductive goals just based on the help that you're able to get when you cry um, and whatnot. Or do we know how like the biology of that happens? Like, does, is it something that just like can naturally happen or like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not quite sure. Again, maybe I would say some kind of mutation where, you know, uh, there's a mutation and now there's a human that has these crying circuits and they're able to cry and they're successful because they're able to get aid and support from other people once they signal that they're crying. And so, uh, you, you know, that through that way, they're able to survive better. And then that, you know, I'm honestly, <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. But, and then what about the depression thing? I, I've heard about depression, like maybe it, like it, like it helps us to like focus on one particular thing. Mm -hmm. thing. Do, do you know yeah. what I mean? depression? Why would you? I mean, there's a, there's a different angles you can take out of depression. There's one, the universal depression that everyone feels where, you know, if you have a loss or maybe you have a breakup, you have a loss on your mate or you have a loss on your job, you get kicked out of the tribe. Um, that depression, that emotion is supposed to, give you a certain feeling like you said it's supposed to channel and direct your energy into maybe focusing on you know what went wrong you might want to dissect it you might want to you just want to prevent and mitigate risk for the future to make sure that this doesn't happen again so i don't feel depressed so in that way you can say that that universal depression um, that is an adaption but there's also the the subjective kind of personality differences so when you think about individual differences in personality in population, there might be uh, a small subset of that population that feels a little bit more depressed than the rest of them, and you're just going to have that. So they're they they're going to see a situation for their reality is slightly different than other people, and you can't change that. But you know, like some people are going to be more depressed than others, um, based on you know innate differences, or maybe it's circumstantial. Maybe they're in an environment where. There is a lot of catastrophe. Uh, there's political corruption. It's there's you know you're in the Middle East. You can't get anything done. Um, you might be more prone to that because you're under certain conditions that that would reduce your likelihood of you know survival, reproduction, and overall mental well-being and happiness. And do you feel like there's anything good that could be becomes of that type of depression? That kind of like not so much like the general depression that everyone has, but like the the, you know, severe depression, is there anything that's, like, good from that, or is it just kind of, like, a totally negative, um... Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's sad. I think it's, it's hard because mental illness is on a spectrum, so, you know, as you get to the tail ends, you're going to get people that are more extremely depressed, and they're experiencing more angst, and, um, you know, they're suffering way more than other people because of where they lie on, you know, the bell curve, and, for the genetic population on when it comes to that trait and, you know, that depression. So, you know, on the tail ends, those are the people that you might want to seek medication for or somewhat, but, you know, again, it's hard if you're, if you're, you know, predisposed to be like 6% more depressed than other people, you're just gonna, you can't really change that. That's just gonna, that's just gonna be a, that's just kind of tragic, I think. Yeah. And then um, I kind of wanted to end it, but wondering about, um, like schizophrenia, do we know, or like maybe like psychopathy or, um, you know, bipolar, um, so, um, like, so, yeah. or whatever, do we know 
more so like the schizophrenia do we know where that stuff comes from or is it is it could it just be like a mutation that's kind of like a bad mutation or like do we know you know there's different um general genes that get coupled together so for example if you have you know there's uh, we should do it we should do a second part where we can talk about the big five yeah personality um you know your openness your conscientiousness your extroversion introversion your agreeableness and your emotional stability and then there's also a six factor uh, which is your iq and your, your iq is a general iq that you know it helps you solve problems across all domains so you could be neurotic but if you're you know 10 percent more you have 10 percent more iq points you're going to be you're going to make better decisions your behavior is going to be better even though you're still the same emotionally unstable whatever level you're at um I honestly again I keep rambling and going off on tangents. I forgot what um, Oh it's fine. Were, were you kind of getting at that like it could have to do with like your intelligence level? Like if you're super intelligent, then you might also be like schizophrenic just because like you're almost like right. too much or something. Yeah, thank you. I was um like there's evidence where you know the higher IQ you get, you might be on certain spectrums. And you might be at a higher risk, a higher probability of experiencing some type of mental illness. So, you know, for example, I think schizophrenia might be that might be one aspect. Um, I can give a you know a direct example. My my grandfather, he was actually you know schizophrenic, but he was also a structural engineer. Um, you know, he was a scientist, but you can kind of tell how uh, sometimes one gene. This is what they call pleiotropy where it can have two or more effects. Um, I like to think of the example of testosterone. So like testosterone in guys and, and you know, certain individuals can, it can help you early on in life with sexual and natural selection processes. Um, you know, you might be, it might help you get in a mate, it might help you with friends, it might help you in all domains, but as you get older, a different effect or a pleiotropic effect of that testosterone um might be prostate cancer so you know older men it's a it's a double-edged sword where selection is absent later in life but the things that help you be successful early in life could always um you know hinder you later it's that's what they would call you know gene pleiotropy yeah what does that have to do with like, schizophrenia do you think somehow the testosterone can lead to schizophrenia yeah, so I guess, you know, it's analogous in the way that it's kind of a double-edged sword where maybe you have someone that's very open and very intelligent. They might be very artsy. Um, and then the more open you get, you can kind of bleed into some schizophrenic or like different mental illnesses. So it's kind of a combination of of different, you know, psycho psycho. Um, different, uh, I want to say mental illnesses or stuff, but honestly, I'm not, I don't have the best answer. Yeah. I'm really just kind of giving my opinion. None of this is really. Yeah. Your opinion, your opinion. And then, um, as far as the artistic, I, I really wanted to end this segment, but as, as far as artistic people go, like, do we know where like, kind of like the arts come from? Is that kind of like from, you know, cave painting or whatever, like. Is it mainly kind of like somebody would go off, maybe see an animal or something, and come back and like draw the animal to show other people? Is that like kind of where art originated from? Do we know? I think, like you said, yeah, there can be practical uses where 
maybe you saw something and you need to draw it down. You need to show other people in a way where you need to describe your ideas to other people. Um, I could see how one aspect of art could, you know, evolve that way. Um, and at the same time, you could, Jeffrey Miller would argue sexual selection and the responsibility that that has on art. So, you know, people want to make art, they want to display their creativity, their intelligence through different avenues for the opposite sex. And now that we have more leisure time than we ever did in history, um, you can afford to, you know, once you meet those basic natural selection needs, you're gonna channel your efforts into other activities such as art, making music, displaying your creativity, um, being as valuable as you can to the group, um, which is kind of what you evolved to do. And since you evolved in those 50 to 150 groups, you're gonna, you're gonna wanna look as valuable as possible to any members of the opposite sex and or you know friends alliances of the same sex um and just okay. uh, so it, once on a com competition really yeah and once again it kind of comes back to like sexual reproduction or whatever and the the last question is um where do you like how, what is your viewpoint on and we kind of went over this in the beginning but what is your view not your viewpoint but how do you think everything came to be um in terms, like, do you think it's, you know, I guess, how would you explain where we came from in terms of, and, and like, what it all means, I guess, if you think there is, like, a purpose in life, um, but in terms of explaining where we all came from, I mean, like, you think it started with the Big Bang, and then kind of, we just kind of randomly evolved into, like, one single-celled organism, and then went from there type thing? Um, yeah, you know, again, like no one really knows what happened before the Big Bang, but pretty much the, you know, the Big Bang through today, it's pretty well understood. Um, and a lot of, yeah, natural and sexual selection can have a lot of the explanation for why you see the things you see today. And I think just that, that understanding of the long time scale, uh, that's really, I think, one of the main things that is important to understand on how went from a single cell organism to multicellular and then i forgot what the timeline was but i i mean you know the big bang was what like 13.8 billion years ago and sexual reproduction only is maybe like 1.2 billion i want to say so it's been a it's been a long time and you know i, I think it's just i don't even think our our brains will were dissolved we're designed to conceptualize that number of a trillion or a billion it's it's like it's so big that i think you know with 80 years that's the, the average lifespan um yeah i mean that's peanuts compared to the time scale and i think just understanding that is is important yeah and do you do you feel like there is any um purpose or meaning or do you think it's all just kind of like random chaos not chaos it's like kind of all just random that we're even here and I mean, I think that once you understand the species that you are, which is a human, you can kind of optimize your environment. So like I said, you know, if people find purpose when they give back to other people or maybe they're being altruistic or, you know, they're finding something that they're really good at. But when you look at it, a lot of that actually has to do with different displays that someone would have under ancestral conditions of being altruistic to other people. You know, you would feel good for that. and you wouldn't really know why, but it's actually, you know, an evolved strategy that would help 
you know, that helps in the long term with uh, your, your status in, in a hierarchy in a group. But I think, you know, when it comes to purpose, like what to do with your life, everyone's kind of looking for their niche and where they have relative strengths over competitors. Um, I think, again, since a lot of the traits and behaviors that you were designed for were to attract other mates and, and to reproduce. So a lot of the, you know, the process of dating and, you know, finding someone that you're going to settle down with, or, or maybe you just want to have casual mating, just the act of getting to sex itself, that process is going to feel good. And you're not really going to know why, or maybe you're going to, um, you know, in, in a job where you're supposed to display your talents to the village and be useful to the group. So, you know, that's why people want to work. That's why you want to, that's why you want to, you know, do good. You want to be well known in your, your company or wherever you are. Um, a lot of, you could say that's purpose. Um, but I think, you know, you can kind of map the, the animal that we are and, and what sorts of goals and motivations they should be striving for. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, evolutionary psychology just kind of gives you insight into that. But again, you know, I'm no expert. I just kind of, this is all speculation and opinion. Yeah, do you feel like learning about it has helped you um, become kind of like a better person and maybe like manage some of your emotions or whatever? Yeah, I think absolutely. You can kind of understand, you know, when you're feeling something and, and why that emotion is even there in the first place. Um, you know, like sexual jealousy or, you know, emotions such as jealousy, anger, all these negative emotions that people feel. Um, a lot of people just say, you know, like, just don't feel it, but it's not really a matter of turning it on and off. But I think, you know, when you understand some of the information from this field and just in, in general, um, I think it, you know, gives you different perspectives and just understanding the the explanation before behind it, but not necessarily justifying it, just explaining, you know, what you're feeling and why you're doing what you're doing. I think, I think that gives you a lot of, uh, a lot of practical knowledge to go on and kind of live your life with. Yeah, cool. Well, do you have anything you want to end on or say? Is there anything more you wanted to say, or is that it? Uh, not right now. I think I think this was a good conversation. I think uh, maybe a part two. I kind of I felt like I rambled, so a lot of I kind of was just doing talking about random stuff. So maybe no, we'll definitely. maybe we'll do another another part. Yeah, and like right in the beginning, I. Honestly, normally I'm just able to like kind of have a conversation, but I was like, I don't even know what to ask here. You know what I mean? Because uh, I'm definitely interested in it, and I do know some about it, but I didn't really. Know. Yeah, maybe but, we'll uh, come back with with some topics and specific questions. I think yeah, it's yeah. always hard to just ramble, but I thought I thought we did pretty good for for no agenda. <laughs> we went to, yeah, me too. Know. And I know you had to work today, and we kind of went longer than expected, so. Thanks for coming on. And if you yeah. ever come back on, just let me know. Maybe we'll have a second harder. Yeah. No, I'll, uh, I'll message you and let's, uh, let's do it again, maybe. In All right. Later next week. Thanks, Adam. Awesome. Okay. All right. Have a good night, Michael. You too. All right. Bye. Bye.